You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Stephen Graham Jones is the New York Times bestselling author of The Only Good Indians. He's been an NEA Fellowship recipient and recipient of several awards, including the Ray Bradbury Award from the Los Angeles Times, the Mark Twain American Voice in Literature Award, the Bram Stoker Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the Jesse James Award for Best Work of Fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters. His latest two books are My Heart is a Chainsaw and Don't Fear the Reaper. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Oh, man, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. These books are incredibly delightful. And and one thing I want to get at right away is I, I look at your, you know, your the books by you and mm-hmm. what you've written, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is not... The what one would call the overnight success story, <laughs> mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think that's actually true of most success stories. Most people who yeah. want to do something it takes them a long time to learn how to do it. Talk mm-hmm. about the, you know, all your time spent actually writing word stringing one after another, and mm-hmm. how that has changed your prose style because your prose style is so uh, hallucinatory. It, it's better than better than good drugs. <laughs> well, that's quite the honor. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, talking about the overnight success thing, I remember listening to an interview with Bella, not Bella, go see Boris Karloff, Boris Karloff's daughter. And she said, um, journalists kept asking him after Frankenstein hit, how's it feel to be an overnight success? And he would say, um, it feels good to be an overnight success after 41 movies, you know, <laughs> which I like, I like that a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, my first novel, it, like it's like a distilled hallucination. And so I feel like over all these many books I've done, I've been trying to find like that modulation point between too weird and just weird enough to be interesting, but not impossible to engage, you know, if, if that makes sense. Um, and, and yeah, I love prose, you know, and um in grad school, I spent a year, this was 95, I guess, from 95 to 96. I did, I made the, I made the decision on my own that I didn't need punctuation anymore. And so uh, for a year, all my stories I turned in had no punctuation and no capitalization, no um, paragraph breaks. And so I was a hugely annoying person at the time, but, um, but what that taught me was how to um, mess with syntax and just all these and the rhythm of the prose such that you're still having discrete clauses and kind of end stops with, you know, you don't have periods, but you can have different, you can have just using solely words, you can still achieve punctuation. And so I was hugely annoying back, back then, but um, that taught me so much about lines, just how to, how to move in lines. You know, I can't, I don't think in lines like a poet. I wish I did. I, I wish I had that ability. I don't, but um, I think in, um, and I think I think in paragraphs. I feel like I think in paragraphs, you know, and I, I really do a lot of sculpting and carving and chiseling and whittling. But, you know, one of the one of the biggest things that I've learned is like as far as revision or drafting or just getting the prose right, it's um knowing when to stop messing with something. You know, that's, that's one of the hardest things because you can fiddle with it forever. And at, at a certain point, you get diminishing returns and then you start ruining the piece, you know. And um, I remember in grad school, I would turn in a story every week if I could and everybody else was taking like three or four weeks between stories. And I finally thought, am I doing it wrong? Should I be spending two weeks on each of these stories? So I wrote a story and I made myself live with it for two weeks and worked on it every day for two weeks. And about the second or third day I had the story down, but I, t- I made myself mess with it for a week and a half more and I ruined the story. It's not, I don't think it's a good story anymore. And I don't have the original draft of it. So it's, it's a lost story too. Um, so I learned from that to, to stop, you know, to stop messing with it. It, it, that's a really interesting uh, take because um, if you're playing music, it's so especially with all of today's multi-track recording devices, yeah. it's easy to take something simple and good and annihilate it, bury yeah. it under tons yeah. of, of extra stuff you do, do not need. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. Yeah, sometimes it's just a voice and a guitar. That's all that. That's what you need. You know? yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now. 
Um, it also it's the uh, idea of writing for you know without punctuation for that long. It, it absolutely shows in the, mm. in the way you write now. Mm. Now, uh, let's uh, zoom forward here to mm. your previous uh, novel. Um, mm. My heart is a chainsaw. This is a beautiful novel, and one of the okay. things that really struck me is the power of narrative that we are used to drive our lives every every moment that we live because mm -hmm. uh the main character uh, jay daniels mm -hmm. is obsessed with slasher movies now those mm -hmm. movies all of them have a very definite and defined narrative and so your character who is embedded in the narrative that you're creating lives a life that is sculpted by the narratives that she's consumed and i think that's just what I love about the book is that in many ways it's very, quote, meta, but in every way it is absolutely the polar opposite of meta. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like we, we kind of ask ourselves what what comes after meta, you know? And um, and uh, I've heard people say stuff like there's a new sincerity, that's the new mode. But I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I would love to do that. I don't know if I am doing that. But, um, and they say like, we're in a post-ironic phase too. And I don't, I don't know, but maybe we are, or maybe we just got sick of all the irony. And so we're looking, casting a bell for something else. But, um, but yeah, it was really important to me that my heart is a chainsaw. I have a beating real heart, a real person in it. You know, it wasn't just an exercise for me to do flashy stuff with slashers and in gore and all that. Um, like, you know, Stephen King says somewhere that if we don't care about your characters and we don't care about the story, we don't care about the meat grinder they get put into in this horror story. And I completely agree with that. I think we, we the reader and I as the writer have to invest in the character so, so deeply, emotionally and intellectually, that um, hopefully we're rooting for them. We can be rooting against them as well. That that works. That, that can work. But um, but yeah, you got to have that 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 real that that that. Like I think horror stories, one of the really important things that they engage is the real. You know, like when a horror story is set in a fake place, like a Shadowland that we have never encountered, it's a lot less scary because there's no element of the real in it. You know, but um, for me, yes, Jade in My Heart Is a Chainsaw and Don't Fear the Reaper, she is that 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 real bowling ball on the trampoline, and everything else has to orient itself around her. You know. One of the things that just now is what you were saying made me think is that the what we see of Jade in these two novels might just be the tip of the iceberg in terms of the work that you did. So talk about yeah. creating this character because that's one of the things that makes these novels so joyously fun to read mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. we sense that there's so much more going on and we feel it in a kind of like the way that you might feel about somebody who you don't talk with a lot but you know that they're really there for you even if they don't say it a lot yeah no i mean that, that's kind of like what i call the um strange attractor and like a chaos system it's the 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 heavy heavy object that you don't see that's like out of this equation out of this orbit but it's still affecting the planetary bodies over here you know and, and you're totally right that that's a very real thing in, in storytelling and fiction um but Jade, you know, I wrote this novel. I wrote My Heart as a Chainsaw the first time in 2013. It had a different title and it had a different different character at the center of it. Um, I had a little boy, a 10-year-old boy. And the novel wasn't working. So I put it on the shelf until probably 2018, right around there. Maybe, maybe the end of 2017. And I got it back down. And because I, I, I already had, in that novel, I had Indian Lake and Proof Rock and Terra Nova and Camp Blood. And I think I had the dam there as well. And definitely Idaho and 8,000 feet up the mountain. And I thought that was all a pretty good setting for a slasher, but I realized I had not told the story right the first time. So I, instead of like revising that original novel, I extracted those elements and wrote a new, a different novel. And Jade kind of um, stood up from it, which surprised me. She like stood up from the waters of Indian Lake, like literally on that first page, she was rising above the water, like um, in Apocalypse Now, like Mark and Sheen in Apocalypse Now, you know? And um, And she was a journalist or she was a wannabe journalist. She was a high school senior who saw writing a book about the terrible events that had just happened was her ticket out of Proof Rock and her only ticket. And so she was trying to collect all the data, figure out the mystery, see what happened. And but and so I wrote a big version of that, gave it to people to read, to friends to read. And 
they got back and they said, yeah, they said it was all right. It was nothing special. But they said that um, back then the novel's in three parts. It went Jade, the Sheriff Hardy, and then Letha Mondrag. And they told three, three separate parts in succession. They would all say, it was really a bummer when we left Jade. We like to hear her talk. We don't like to hear Hardy talk. We don't like to hear Letha talk. We only want Jade. And so I rewrote it a few times and from the ground up again with Jade at the center. And she just got more and more and more real. And at the, at the time, my daughter was that same age too. So it was easy for me to like, like see my daughter and write Jade, if that makes sense, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, but also Jade, like I was a custodian, I was a night janitor at the biggest daycare in Texas in high school, you know? So I have that to share with Jade and I got kicked out of school for my t-shirt choices. And a lot of the things that Jade, um, kind of, are, that's part of her character are really just, things that I smuggled in from my own life, you know? So yeah, she's very real to me and very, she matters a lot. And it's always hard for me to be mean to her too. <laughs> from the very first time I read the mm. word, mm. I, I couldn't help but, and this is betraying my age, I was brought up or I mm. went to college at a time when mm. T.S. Eliot was the the mm. highest of all literary uh, gods. Yeah. So, mm. um, when I read Proofrock, all I could think mm -hmm. of was was uh, Mr. Elliot's J. Alfred. Is that yeah, is there yeah, a relationship yeah. there? there? I mean, I've always I've always loved that title. I actually don't love that poem a whole lot, but um, I like that title a whole lot. You know, um, the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock is just so so compelling for some reason. Um, it's so grand and like melodramatic, you know. And and then since since this town I was using. 8,000 feet up the mountain in Idaho was a town founded on mining. Then Proofrock seemed like a, if I spelled it differently, it seemed like a, a town name that would fit a mining community, you know? And, and also I needed a town name that wasn't in use in Idaho because I didn't want it to be a real, I didn't want it to be a place where I'd have to um, be beholden to the post office being here and the school being here. I wanted to be able to put stuff wherever I wanted to put it. You know. Now uh, of that, do you, did you make yourself a map of your fictional town? <laughs> I didn't for the first book. I, for the second book, Don't Fear the Reaper, I realized I needed to know how long it takes to get from here to here and there to there. So I went back and listened to the audio book of My Heart is a Chainsaw and took a lot of notes about this must be over there. This must be over there. Because My Heart is a Chainsaw, I was just making it all up and didn't matter. I was never going to use it again. I didn't write it as a, as a intended trilogy. I wrote it as a standalone. And so I didn't think I was ever going to use this landscape again. When I was using that landscape again, then I had to figure out where things were. Yeah, so I did draw a little crude map. Now, one of the things I really mm. loved about that that book was the intro with the with the Dutch couple. Mm. It just mm -hmm. super effectively I would be hard pressed to say what exactly happened, but whatever mm. it was, it mm. creeped me out for the mm. next 300 pages. Mm. And I thought, mm. well, this is a master at work. <laughs> so uh, talk about that opening, which, no. you know, really does hail back to the mini uh, classic horror movie. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, to talk about that opening, I have to go back to a previous novel I did, The Only Good Indians, which starts with a similar thing, like a guy getting killed in a parking lot. And when I first wrote The Only Good Indians, that prologue, that like blood sacrifice at the front of the slasher, it came about 45% through the novel. And when I consulted my slasher scaffolding to understand what the genre needs, what it requires, I realized that you have to open with a uh, a killing that's kind of slightly mysterious. It's both gory and mysterious, you know, because we don't quite see the killer. And so in My Heart is a Chainsaw, in my most recent draft of it at the time, um, that scene with the Dutch couple came about 30% into the novel and I extracted it and moved it to the front and it worked really well as an introduction to kind of establish the tone of what's going to go on here. Because if you don't do that in a slasher, then you can spend a third of the novel or a third of the story wondering, is this real? Is this happening? But if you've got bodies in the, fir in the first few pages, you know it's real. You know, you just don't know who's doing it quite. And you don't know why they're doing it. But um. But yeah, it was really fun. And you know, the reason, I think the reason that they're they're Dutch was because I had just done a, an event or two with that um that Dutch writer, Thomas Olde Huvelt, H-U-E-V-L-E-T, right. E-L-T, uh, I think. Yeah. yeah Hex. Yeah. 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 Hex was truly scary. I'm really excited to read his Echo too. I've got, I've got it sitting somewhere around here. Um, I'd done a couple of events with him and I kind of liked the way he, he like, um, articulate his words he's a i mean dutch people are really good english speakers you know um mm -hmm. 
And so Lottie and Sven, I think that's in, in the opening of My Heart is a Chainsaw, they're kind of um, sheltered people and that they haven't learned English, but everyone else, everyone else over there knows English pretty well, you know? So I feel a little bad about characterizing them like that, but it, for the, for the dramatics to work, I had to do it, you know? One of the things that I love about the horror genre mm. is the way that it takes like the worst parts of our, the worst things in our hearts, the worst things in our heads, and then externalizes them and uses them as plot points. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. because on one hand, it makes for an exciting plot. On the other hand, it makes for a plot that grabs right back into our hearts and into our minds, both. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I'd like you to, this book has, you know, many things that it's talking about aside from, you know, uh, a more, more killings <laughs> than mm-hmm. I can remember. So yeah. uh, talk about, you know, how you, when you're writing this thrilling novel, um, mm-hmm. how th- those other things bubble up. Yeah. Um, you know, a good example of that would be, or maybe one example anyways, would be um, like my love of slashers begins in eighth grade when I would watch, I would go out to a friend's like garage. It was in the trees away from the house. And we'd sit on the couch, like six of us, eight of us and watch on a little 13 inch TV, like Jason, Michael, Freddie, all that stuff. And, and about two in the morning, his dad would come scare us, like scratch on the, on the door, like Freddie Claus, you know? And, and we would run out the side of that, that garage and the rule we had, which I don't know why it made sense to us, but it did make sense. Was that if we made it to the Creek and jumped in, we were safe. And, um, and, which was really just an excuse to jump in the creek, of course. But um, I didn't realize it until until I was until long after I until long after My Heart Is a Chainsaw was published. But in My Heart Is a Chainsaw, the safe place to be from the killer is under the water, you know. And and so I, I never realized that I was smuggling in my own eighth grade survival instincts and build using it as a plot point in My Heart Is a Chainsaw, you know. But I told I totally was, <laughs> and it's really informed the whole trilogy, to tell the truth. <laughs> Now, now um, one of the things that a that, uh, uh, book like this does is mm. it's essentially built on the bones of a mystery. I mean, mm. Agatha yeah. Christie, you know, it's um, much more exciting. But talk mm. about the both the similarities to the way that mysteries inform what you do, mm. but also mm. the way where slashers, uh, you know, diverge in a very significant manner. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I love those old Agatha Christie closed door mysteries. I think those are the height of storytelling. They're so amazing. They're, they're so perfect. Now I'm glad that that stuff is finding a, like a revival and knives out and that those kind of things are happening again. You know, it thrills me. Um, and I do think that the slasher is built on the backbone of those closed door mysteries for sure. Like, um, what it like, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of the, the non-racist title for oh and then there were none that's it the agatha christie novel and then there were none um like that novel is nine ninety percent a slasher it feels like because what what it and what what the slasher gets from those old mysteries is um the red herrings that's the big thing it gets like we all think it's this person but it's really this person over here doing it and and i guess i should specify um i think there's two types of slashers there's the um there's the the revenge slasher and the mad dog slasher. The mad dog slasher is just like somebody escapes from some holding facility and they like to kill, so they start killing. They don't have a reason for it. They're like opportunity. I'm going to do it. Um, whereas there's also revenge slashers, which someone was wronged x amount of time ago and now they've returned in a mass to exact their revenge to get what they think is justice. And those all so often maybe always take the form of mysteries because you don't know who this person is like you you saw them 10 years ago in elementary but now it's like college and um they look different and they have a different name so who is it and you have all these red herrings around you don't know who it is you're getting you're getting clues and um and the the big difference in a mystery and a slasher is that um like like Agatha Christie Christie had Hercule Poirot you know she had her investigator who had a, a heck of a mind that he could ferret out and intuit all this stuff um slashers are much more run and chase stalk and slice you know um if there is an investigator it's probably the final girl but to tell you the truth 
the final girl doesn't have a moment like in psych where Sean Spencer gives a big monologue or Columbo gives a monologue and, you know, and says, this is why you did it. And here's how I caught you. She's too busy trying to fend off a machete or a chainsaw, you know, and it's usually the slasher who does their own revealing. Like, this is why I'm doing this. They give like a villain monologue, you know, or we get a villain flashback that stands in for that monologue. So that's the, that's the big difference in those old closed door mysteries or just in any mystery in a slasher, I think, but, but, for like two thirds of their selves, they're they're similar. They follow the same beats largely. And, and speaking of which, one of the most enjoyable mm. aspects uh, of reading My Heart Is a Chainsaw and, and uh, Don't Fear the Reaper mm. are the generous red herrings you give us. And I really mm. love that. I'd be l- reading through the book and think, is it her? Is it him? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Who's this? It's really got to be him. You know, <laughs> they engage the same uh, mm-hmm. reading enjoyment that mm-hmm. that that the mystery offers, which is, you know, you're trying to think ahead of the yeah. author, but you yeah. really can't. And it's yeah. really fun when you yeah. catch up. No, that's, that's wonderful. Like, if you can turn the reader into a participant then they're helping you build the story and that's that's amazing when that happens and i'm so thrilled that you say it happened reading reading these books that that means a lot um but but yeah it's because it's like the writer we can't do the whole book ourselves we can do 90 percent of the book but the last 10 percent of it is the reader they have to invest and be willing to invest and have a reason to invest you know i and that brings us back to the characters mm-hmm. and both your books in this trilogy mm. have a pretty large cast of characters, which I think you mm. handle extraordinarily well. Oh, thank you. There is no, uh, you don't have to uh, go back to a cast of characters at the beginning or the end. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I'd like you to talk about understanding what the reader's thinking and how much there are little tiny brains you assume can comprehend and put things together yeah. so that you yeah. want them to be putting this person in the wrong place here, but understand who, where they're really mm-hmm. coming from. Yeah. You know, a big part of that is um, like just understanding the genre you're writing in, like the slasher here. And I, I completely understand that um, the audience for slashers aren't just fans. They're like super fans. They know every minor, minor beat development possibility that can happen at any story turn. And, but because I know that they know the genre so well, I can also a little bit anticipate what they might be thinking at this juncture or that, that place. And, and so then I can like hold up some bright, bright thing over here that will be an easy thing for them to look at. But while they're doing that, I'm doing something behind the scenes, you know, and I'm, the trick is you've got to, you've got to pull those kind of slides of hand, those narrative slides of hand without losing the reader's trust. That's the hard part because it's so easy to cheat, you know, and you, if you allow yourself to cheat, then the reader is going to sense it. They may not be able to articulate what's wrong, but they will figure out that you're cheating and they will put the book down or not recommend it to someone or whatever the case, they won't be as into it as they were, but yeah, it's all about anticipating their expectations and then both satisfying them while also undercutting them a little bit, you know, you know, um, the, uh, the subsidiary characters in the, in both these books are just really really wonderful. Uh, um, Leah, uh, Sheriff Hardy, the mm-hmm. the the history teacher, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the 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 janitor of the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, talk about uh, you know creating these characters because some of them, I mean it seems to me like you could as a reader having read these books i could easily imagine i would just run out and buy you know a book about the subsidiary character Mm -hmm. i can imagine Mm -hmm. that that janitor there's Mm -hmm. a there's a good slasher or or some kind of horror novel in that guy yeah yeah no that that's um that's really cool and you know like initially rexall that janitor he was he was meant to be a throwaway character like in the first quarter of my heart is a chainsaw he, i didn't really expect him to come back but um he was so annoying that he kept coming back and um and now he he's coming back again and again like he's becoming one of the like um like you call him the deck crew on the enterprise like the people who persist you know like like dewey and um and sydney and gail and scream um but um 
or persist to a point. Anyways, they, they do. Um, and Hardy, he's kind of based on a sheriff. I kind of a little bit knew back when I was growing up in, in high school, I kind of made, he's kind of a mix of, of someone I knew and also Slim Pickens from the howling. He's a people, he's a sheriff in there. <laughs> he's, he's really good. Um, and I always, I love Slim Pickens is so good. I wish, I wish, um, like the same way that Bruce Willis has sold his like likeness to be used in movies in some sort of animated fashion. I kind of wish Slim Pickens would still be around too, because he was so good. Um, and Letha, um, Letha was always, she was always planned. I mean, I, I say planned, I don't really plan things, but I always knew that she was part of the core dynamic, you know? Um, and the person who turns out to be in law enforcement and don't fear the reaper, that was a big surprise to me. I did not have that planned at all. You know? <laughs> now, mm -hmm. uh, you started this book long ago and, and mm -hmm. had to, or the, the series as, as it were, uh, long mm -hmm. ago. When did you know that you were going to turn it into a trilogy and how did you know that? And, and mm -hmm. are, are the books going to get, well, we have an 800-page capper? <laughs> the third one is the longest of the trilogy. Uh, sorry, I turned it in in August, and it is it is the longest of the three. Um, but it's hard. you got to tie a lot of knots in the end of those threads, you know? <laughs> that's, that's the trick. Um, but, um, no, when I wrote My Heart is a Chainsaw as Lake Access Only, it was not a trilogy. And then when I sold it and we changed the title to My Heart is a Chainsaw, it was still not a trilogy, it was a standalone, but working with Joe Monty, my editor at Saga, at the very end of our revisions of our notes process, he said, um, you know, everybody in this story is dead at the end. And I said, yeah, it's Hamlet, it's a tragedy, you can't let anybody live. And he said, he said, what I'm saying is that the the reader has invested a lot of their self into these characters and then you're just snatching them away at the end. And I said, yeah, I, it's a slasher, didn't you hear me? <laughs> and um. And he said, you might just consider um, being a little, not, 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 not nice, but not so cruel, you know? And, and so of course, being a, being a writer, I was stubborn and claiming literary integrity. And I said, no, no, I know, I know this story. I've been writing this for eight years. I know how it ends. And so for about two weeks, I held that, 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 that pose, you know, but finally, um, and this wasn't with Joe Monty, like hammering me with notes. He just said it once and let it stand, but it, he just has to say it once because I listen, you know, or because it lodges with me. And um, I finally opened a side file and I said, you know what? I'm going to prove that he's wrong. I'm going to let some of these characters live and then he'll see how stupid it is. And then we'll have to go back to my way. So I did that. But when I did it, it completely worked. I had no idea it was going to work to um, let, let a few people live. And, and then I turned, then he liked that. He liked the rewrite and we finalized the book and it came out and, my agent and my editor, Joe Monte, they came to me and they said, what's next? What are you going to do next? And I said, I'm going to do book two. And they said, what? And I said, yeah, it's a trilogy. And I pretended like I'd known it all along, but I just figured it out, you know? <laughs> you know, um, one of the things mm. that makes these books mm. uh, so much fun to read mm. are the the parallels that are in, in the sites that are constantly coming out of Jade and then other characters as well. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. Could you talk about like how much of those uh, sites actually are you talking about your influence and how much of them are you just having fun with uh, name dropping? I mean, I, I, I love yeah. Mr. Armitage. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's he, fun. huh? Yeah. You, you got to love Armitage. I mean, he, he's straight out of Lovecraft. He is. He's a true believer. You know, he's a super fan. Um, And I kind of worry that Armitage might be like, me calling myself out, you know, for, for being a super fan. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, there's so many citations, so many references, so many name drops and people go on to Letterboxd and they try to, um, to list all the references in Chainsaw and Reaper, which is kind of fun. You know, I've never checked them because I don't, I don't have my own list. I just would go by their list because I don't remember anymore. I didn't keep a list. Um, but that, that was a rule I gave myself. Um, and it's actually a rule that I inherited from another book I did back in, I wrote it in 99. It came out in 2006. It's called Demon Theory. It's a not, it's a horror novel in three parts with like 485 footnotes, maybe 487, a whole lot of footnotes. And those footnotes are all the same thing. It's all references and citations, you know, um, and associated titles, all, all that kind of stuff. And the rule I gave myself for that book was um, I couldn't let any scene change form just to direct itself to 
a title that I could talk about in the footnote because I thought that would that would mess the story up, you know. And so I only let things come up organically, and that's the rule I give myself in Chainsaw too. That um, Jade, yes, she is like a compulsive character. She wants to monologue about slashers to anybody she can corner, you know. And she's kind of annoying in that that fashion, I think. Hopefully endearing, but maybe a little bit annoying. Um, but my rule I gave myself was. Only if it comes up organically. I don't want to have a pre-existing list. Like you've got a checklist. I've got to mention this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. You know, it, it had to be scattershot to feel remotely real to me anyways. I didn't want to feel like I was cheating. You know, I didn't want to feel like I was using Jade as a funnel to pour trivia through. You know, I, th I don't think that's an honest use of a character. Um, at the same time, I was thrilled that Jade, in when she was, what, 12 years old or however young she was, when she glommed onto the Bay of Blood, that VHS tape in the clearance bin at that gas station, I was so thrilled that she picked that up instead of like taking one step over and picking up a golf tee. Cause I don't know anything about golf. So I don't know how I would make her life be all about golf, you know, and, <laughs> or maybe, maybe she gets into aviation or math and I don't know any of that stuff. So I'm so lucky that she picked slashers cause I know slashers. <laughs> um, one of the things that's really nice is the way that um, the, reflections of the first book mm. which are itself a slasher <laughs> in mm. a book that constantly references uh, slashers mm. so talk mm. about you know burrowing using the first book to burrow into the subject of the second book that's a really good i had not even thought of it like that i like that a lot um Maybe I'll start claiming that that I did it intentionally, you know. <laughs> but no, I think you're totally you're right. Free. That is how that it that is how my heart is a chainsaw works in relation to Don't Fear the Reaper. You know, it kind of folds into being just another reference, another citation. Um, but at, you're right that um Don't Fear the Reaper is or the people in Don't Fear the Reaper are very aware of the different permutations the slasher can take, especially taking into account the way it happened last time, you know, in my heart is a chainsaw. And and so it's like you, you're you living in the shadow of this way it happened last time. And does that inform the way it's going to happen this time? And I mean, I don't want to spoil anything if it if it's yes or no, but um, that is definitely something the characters are dealing with. Yes. Also, too, to me, uh, the way that, you know, you you there's a break of four years between the, between, mm. between the two. So mm -hmm. talk about that in terms of, you know, a pacing. Did, was there a, a time when you just considered essentially picking up where the last one left off or, yeah. you know, and also how that would, you know, change the, the story map as it were, the narrative map? It would change everything. Yeah, like do the thing that happens between Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, where like the moment Halloween 1 goes over, Halloween 2 starts. You know, like it's all this violence, and then we go to the hospital, because that's where you go after violence, Um, if you're if you're lucky. Um, The reason I ended up putting that padding, I think it's two reasons. Um, One is that these novels are present tense, and I felt like, um, and they're probably, I don't even know how many pages are, they're probably 400 pages each or so. Um, and And so if the second one picks up exactly where the first one left off and they're both present tense, then I think things would become like a big smear. It'd feel like one book instead of two units, if that makes sense. Um, and also I worried that starting Don't Fear the Reaper exactly where Chainsaw leaves off would diminish any possible resonance that the end of Chainsaw has. You know, like I think the end of Chainsaw is, um, it needs to settle and it turns out to take four years to settle. Um, and yeah, I think, I knew that I couldn't um, I couldn't pick up immediately where it left off because we needed time for the characters to reflect. We needed times for we needed time for the community to develop and try to deal with this trauma of this terrible thing that happened, you know, because the first book is about trauma to a character. The second book kind of feels like trauma to a community, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, too, I I love their this quote. History repeats itself. First is tragedy, second is farce. I think mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. that quote tells us a lot about your books, but also mm -hmm. a lot about the slasher genre because yeah. there's always mm -hmm. a kind of slightly comedic edge to you know mm -hmm. the the juggling chainsaws, etc. No, there you're definitely right. There is, and I mean, I think. And, and Jade talks about this in the first book, I think, in Chainsaw, right towards the end, um, with those earrings she has that are the 
theater face earrings, smiling and frowning. And I think that that's what the slasher is. The slasher is a coin with a scream on one side and a laugh on the other. And you flip it in the air. And as it as it goes through its arc, that's that's the story of a slasher. It goes back and forth from a scream to a laugh. Um, I read somewhere many years ago that physiologically, you can't tell a scream from a laugh until the moment of eruption. And I think the, the slasher capitalizes on that, you know, like, especially scream, I think. Um, and all the scream, like um, the ones who follow in screams mold or pattern. And, and, a, and also talking humor and horror, I think the way humor works in horror, or the way it can work, maybe the way it should work, is not as not necessarily as a, a leavening agent, but as a pressure release valve. Um, horror wants to go screechy really fast, and it wants to go to a plateau where it's all screechy, but that's there's no variation in that. It's just a flat thing of a yell, a scream, a terror. But what humor does, what a, what a well-placed laugh or gag or whatever can do is it resets that screech and you come back down and you climb again and we come back down and you climb again. And that's 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 the purpose mechanically that humor can serve in horror. And um, when I'm reading a horror piece, a horror book or watching a horror film, if there aren't some some laughs in there of some sort, they can be like black humor, you know, they can be pretty dark. But if there's not some sort of humor, I tend to drift away because this doesn't seem like the real world to me anymore. In the real world, we make stupid jokes when we're nervous, you know? Um, also, too, one thing I've been mm -hmm. talking with some scientists of late mm -hmm. about the experience of awe, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is really necessary for humans to keep going to, to to be psychologically healthy. And yeah. to me, he, uh, horror, the horror genre, as opposed to the slasher genre, but the horror genre, which mm -hmm. encompasses the slasher genre, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and awe, they are flip, They are also opposites of the same coin. And I think you do yeah. really mm -hmm. well, especially when you're writing the scenes that are the most you know, terrifying and violent. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There's also an undercurrent no, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of awe. When I read 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 those parts, um, at one time you're thinking, "Oh my god, that's just awful." But also you're thinking, "This writing is really awesome and somehow well, thank uh, you. beautiful." I mean, that's the thing. I read the 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 more dire the situation you're describing, the more beautiful it feels in terms of the writing. No, thank you so much. I wonder. If I got infected by Dario Argento, who, you know, his Giallo films, they're, it's like a, it's almost like a, sometimes they feel like a celebration of violence because he makes it so pretty, his color palettes, the way he moves the camera around. Um, and it's just, it's gorgeous the way he does these terrible things. And I'm, I'm really compelled by that. Um, but I think you're totally right that we need awe in our lives. I think the two things we need are two of the things we need. We need awe and we need boredom. You know, I think boredom is harder to come by than we think like in this modern age, it's really hard to come by, I think, but probably every age says that too, you know, I suspect. <laughs> um, so, but we need to daydream. We need time to daydream, but we need to, that sense of awe is looking at the vastness of something or just the, the intricateness of a drying leaf, or it can be that too, you know, it can be small, it can be big, but what it what it does is it allows you as the observer or participant to engage um, something that feels large, larger than yourself, and that is really pleasant for us. I think it may be even necessary for us as humans to engage something we think is larger. However, like weird fiction or cosmic fiction, often takes that awe and turns it inside out into a really distinct form of terror. Because in cosmic horror, you often are faced with your own insignificance in the vastness of this carnivorous universe, you know. And that that's that's terrifying, of course. Um, we don't want to face our own insignificance. We want to think we're the center of our own system, but it's not always the case, of course. Um, but yes, um, I do like. I remember years and years ago in grad school. Was this the critic? I think it was the critic Robert Scholes. He said, the definition of literary is describing a funeral in comic terms, which is to say the content and the delivery method don't quite match. And that that friction creates a third thing, you know? And I think when fiction is working well, it can put the content and the delivery and the, like the wrapper it's in, it can put those in a certain sort of um, friction that is productive, that leads to a third thing for the reader, if we're lucky that's right well for me reading is such a weird experience because uh. we are you know essentially kind of directing this own movie in our own heads 
mm-hmm. from from the screenplay that that you get us, and there's just something that happens mm-hmm. there that makes it mm-hmm. more involving. I the death of the novel has been predicted many times. I know mm-hmm. Ridley Scott after making uh, Blade Runner said, you know, mm-hmm. the novels just be it's it's gone. And, mm-hmm. and I can see why he might say that after having made that movie. Nonetheless, here mm-hmm. we are, uh, mm-hmm. 41 years later, and the novel yeah. is still going strong. Talk about just the the power of this form of art and, and you know, that connection, because mm-hmm. every reader has an individual connection with mm-hmm. the writer. Yeah, they do, definitely. And it's magic, too, because a writer can speak to a reader across 400 years, across light years, you know, across vast cultural divides. And it's it's an amazing magic act, I think. And I think that's what Stephen King calls it. He says books are a, a portable magic, you know, and I completely agree with that. Um, it makes complete sense to me. But um, I don't think the novel is dying just because I don't think storytelling is going to die. And I think the novel is one of the most direct lines between the reader and the writer. Like you can tell a wonderful story with a video game. You can tell a wonderful story with a movie, with a television show, with a poem, with a song. Those are all wonderful. And I hope they don't go away either. But I think um, the novel, it just requires one person um, with a pen and then one person who can read that. Then that, 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 that's wonderfully elegant. I think you don't need modern technology for that. Really. You don't, you don't, you don't need a lot. You don't need, don't need a lot of stuff. Um, and I think we're always going to need narrative. I, like us engaging these these extended narratives, which novels are, is basically us um, flexing our narrative muscles and keeping them in shape. And we need those narrative muscles desperately. Like um, that's how we maintain our own personal identity, our own personal myth is with narrative. Like narrative is selection and selection towards an intended effect. And and so for my personal myth, I might go back and tell five stories, like one from when I'm four years old living in this town, one when I'm 12 on this basketball team, one when I'm 16 having a car wreck, one when I'm 23 and get married, and and one when I get my first job at 30 or whatever it is. That I might characterize my life by those those five events, but that's not my whole life. That's just the things that I'm pulling a narrative thread through in order to result in who I am right now. And I think novels, by letting the reader engage this narrative they become better like um writers of their own narrative because their narrative muscles are being worked out more and more and so i think we're always going to need stories i don't think stories are going anywhere and i think i think novels and the books that they're packaging and you know the either kindle or paper or audio however it happens um I think those aren't going away anytime soon at all. I think there are going to be other forms that arise. I think I think I suspect that movies and video games are going to hybridize before too long and create some new thing that we haven't even guessed at. But I think the book will still be there. You know, one of the scenes that really struck me in the book, mm-hmm. and one of the themes of of, of these books is, mm-hmm. is uh, gentrification. Mm-hmm. And there's just a scene where we see uh, the 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 rich folks come in and it just really in the first book and it really yeah. just struck me and stood stayed with me that you know this is it was seemed like a really interesting and profound statement about you know uh not just gentrification but you know the the uh, luxury gap as it's called mm-hmm. yeah no um you know when i turn this novel into my editor he read it through and he, he wrote me back and he said, oh, it's a novel about gentrification. And so I kind of opened up a side tab on my browser to make sure I understood what gentrification was, <laughs> you know. Um, and, it, and it turns out he's right. It is about gentrification. For me, it was about colonization, you know. But I think colonization and gentrification are the same dynamic, just on different scales, you know. Um, I mean, Terra Nova is not named the New World for no reason, of course, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, uh, too, uh, you know, I think that one of the things I think you do really well in this book is, and that's for me another virtue of horror novels, especially mm-hmm. those that are set in the here and now, is that these are some of the closest and most honest looks at the way the average American lives. I mean, 
Mm. Even though you will have some hyper rich people here, mm. most mm. of the characters are, are, you know, kind of barely making it. And, mm. and, and they aren't like superstars in their own world or anything. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's one of the things I think that's really appealing about novels and and particularly about these novels mm. is that they are great pictures of America in the 21st century. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, it's funny because like when the novel was first coming around, like, a long time ago, it would always be the memoirs of this famous person or this fake famous person. You know, like you had to be like a high important person to to like deserve this book length treatment. But you're right. Now nowadays we've we've come to a place where you don't have to be like king of a little country or anything to have a novel. You can be somebody. You can be a used car salesman and have a, have a novel, and it can be a completely compelling, wonderful novel. And yeah, for for my heart as a chainsaw, these characters are not the spectacular characters. They're not up on the um, parapets of castles having sword fights. You know, they're trying to figure out how they can scratch enough money together to um, get a Coke down at the convenience store. <laughs> One of the things that also strikes me too is, mm. I mean, both of these novels say, please make me into a movie. Uh, <laughs> I would imagine that there's been some interest in that. Yeah. Yeah, there has in my heart is a chainsaw and um, it's still cooking. You know, you know how Hollywood is like every project in Hollywood. I feel like it's an ice comet trying to break through the atmosphere of a planet, you know, and it just catches on fire and more and more of it falls apart. Every once in a while, a little iron core or nickel core gets to the surface of the planet, but not often, you know. <laughs> uh, now, uh, in terms of, of uh, the, mm. the the story arc, you know, there's the, one of the things mm -hmm. I really enjoyed is the story arc within each book is really strong, but also the story arc between them is is really strong. And typically, the uh, middle book in a in a trilogy is often seen as the weakest point, and, and mm -hmm. I just don't get that feeling at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the hell out of this. Uh, don't fear the <laughs> reaper. So mm -hmm. talk about making, once you understood you were going to write a trilogy, talk about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, merging the, you know, three narrative arcs into one. Yeah. No, you're right. It's very tricky. What I did for Don't Fear the Reaper, because I'd never written a sequel before or the middle book in a trilogy, was I kind of fell back on the Empire Strikes Back and the Two Towers, because I think those are both, those are two stories that get the middle book right, you know, mm -hmm. but you're right. There is often kind of a second act slump in the middle book of a trilogy, you know, where you feel like the um, conflict is kind of petering out and the writer's on to prop up the story to let it get to the next iteration, the next installment. And you're right, being aware of that, I for sure wanted to avoid it. And so the way I avoided it was, or the way I tried to avoid it was having Don't Fear the Reaper hit the ground running and just keep running the whole time and pulling the reader through really, really quickly. Because um, if you ever let the reader in the second book stop, then they start to sink a little bit, I feel like, you know, and, mm -hmm. and luckily because it was a second book, I had the luxury of having a place already built and characters already built so i didn't have to slow down to introduce jade to introduce proof rock to introduce terra nova all that stuff i could just the month the minute the story's boots hit the ground we were we were moving and it hopefully kept moving the whole time now um in terms of uh doing uh writing the 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 narrative of of the second book one of the things I, I really liked was that the way that you know you modulated the different characters that we got to see them through different uh, mm -hmm. in different places and in different mm -hmm. ways. So mm -hmm. talk about working out how you're going to you know you have already taken the characters through one thing and there's a tendency I would imagine to just mm -hmm. re redo put new clothes on that yeah so talk about yeah. changing it up like that yeah there was that that impulse to do that but um, i knew that the second book can't just be the first book dressed up differently it's got to be a different book you know a different shaped book um and i guess that that's basically what it was for me i think i just uh I knew that it, it couldn't be the same. And also I was, I was worried. Like I, I know I was talking about my first drafts of the new version of this novel that people said it was a bummer when we left Jade, you know, we wanted to stick with Jade. She's the interesting person, but I also was 
keenly aware that too much spotlight trained on a single character for too long can burn that character or make them get a, they can seem abrasive to the reader you know and and so i felt like jade needed a little time like behind the curtain you know to let other people step forward but the i wanted to like in the first book she was at the, at the center of everything to the to the point where you can kind of think is she doing it you know is she the one responsible for this but in the second one i didn't want to like suggest that as strongly so i let her step behind the curtain and i let the story roll on sometimes without her i think she's always kind of in a satellite fashion too all those other scenes but um yeah just it was it was fun to do and it was surprising to me i was just coming out of a reread of larry mcmurtry's lonesome dove and of course he does that in lonesome dove he goes from from pi to 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 call to, to everybody you know and and he has a it feels like he established a rule for himself in that book that it's in parts it's in chapters and parts each time he starts a new part he introduces a new character um like clara up in north dakota or just new characters and so i tried to make myself come up with a rule like that also which would give the book a feeling of structure even if you can't necessarily articulate what that structure is i think it gives it it makes it feel like there is a scaffolding behind here i hope oh no no that's one of the things about both these books is they seem very strong i mean it's like you you get on the road and you know the road is going to go somewhere yeah <laughs> and no, you're not going to no. be let off and i think that has to do with the control you establish of your prose oh thank you so much that i mean that's what we all want from any read we want to feel like we're in we're in hands we can trust but we also want to feel like we also want to question that do i really trust this person like does the structure and the writing can can elicit trust but it can be going to dark places and the reader can be like, I'm not sure I want to go there, but this writer's going there. So I'm going to walk timidly behind them. You know, it's fun to do. I think. The new novel by Stephen Graham Jones is don't fear the reaper. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. It was an honor. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.